Simple Beep, episode 40, the Worldwide Developers Conference. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as we record and release this episode, pretty much everyone else in the Mac world is looking forward to the Worldwide Developers Conference, WWDC, which is about to start on June 13th. But true to our form, we tend to look backwards instead of forwards. But we figured that we would stay on theme as people get excited for what's now the biggest event in Apple's annual calendar. So before we start talking about some of our favorite historical WWDCs, I think it it would help to talk a little bit about what WWDC entails, because I think a lot of non-developer members of the Mac community really know WWDC for its opening keynote, where um, at least recently some upcoming changes to the operating systems are previewed. Uh, we've had some hardware releases, but there's a lot more to the week-long event. And I know that at least in recent years, uh, the keynote has been a separately ticketed event from the rest of the week-long conference, which really focuses on sessions and labs and having developers interact with people who work at Apple and getting their questions answered. Whereas the keynote is open to those people who are registered for the full conference, but is also a media event where you can have a media credential just to go and hear the announcements, and then you're kind of done for the week, at least in terms of the official Apple events that are going on. And uh, the second major event that happens at WWDC is kind of a secondary keynote called the Developer State of the Union, which is where uh, the more technical aspects of what was discussed in the morning can be discussed at greater detail. It's the nerd keynote. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas the other is is geared towards the tech press in many ways, at least today. And I know that Speaking of my personal history of WWDC, I mean, obviously, I've been aware of this event for a long time, at, at least a decade. And even though it goes back well before that, early WWDC history is really mired, in, <laughs> lost to the sands of time. Uh, but various sources can't even agree on when the first one was, but I think it's pretty pretty definite that it was 1985. That's what I saw, too. I, I certainly don't go that far back with it, but... In terms of this event, the State of the Union, I think the first one that I ever watched was last year as it became more available to watch the State of the Union and some of the other sessions online pretty much as they happened, maybe not live streamed, or but same day. And I remember last year I sat down at, in front of my Apple TV and watched the entire State of the Union, which was not thrilling in every moment, but definitely had some interesting technical bits that I was happy that I had access to it, something that I certainly hadn't in previous years. Yeah. And you mentioned the sessions, which are, of course, the the meat of the week-long event where, with all these new technologies uh, announced in the keynote and State of the Union on the first day, developers are there to learn how they can adopt them into their apps or not even the new recently announced technologies, just to get better with some hands-on experience and uh, advice from Apple employees on how to better integrate Apple's SDKs and APIs into the apps they're making for the Apple platforms. And that's not all. There's also some more fun events. There's the uh, the Beer Bash, which I think is now just The Bash, where uh, a, a band of relative popularity will play 
and I think it's been at the Yerba Buena Gardens for a while, and this year is moving uh, back to the uh, the Bill Graham Auditorium, I think. So it'll be like a fun sit-down concert. The majority of this episode will probably be discussing a lot of announcements that were likely detailed at these keynotes. Um, but it's fun to go through and research these things because every once in a while, if the band had some kind of particular importance, they will be mentioned in like the the year's WWDC information. It's like this year it was Jimmy Eat World because that means something or OK Go. Yeah, and I didn't realize that OK Go uh, performed at the bash, but there's a picture of them doing it in WWDC jackets on Wikipedia, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which we'll link up. That's that's kind of awesome. Uh, there are definitely pretty much every band on here I would happily listen to. Michael Franti and Spearhead, they're playing in Ann Arbor this summer. Uh, haven't decided if I'm going to go to that show or not. Uh, Neon Trees, saw them when I was in grad school. Uh, Vampire Weekend, Bastille, all the kinds of people that you would expect to be around at Apple centered music event um you know it's like a it's like a mini offshoot of something like the itunes festival where they really go all in and to putting together a concert experience Mm -hmm. one other thing that goes on at wwdc is because it's a developer event there's also some recognition of developers and this takes the form of the apple design awards which apple has several categories. They tend to change every year. Uh, I, I remember that there was some issue or a little controversy when they decided one year to basically only award iOS apps. Um, and now it's more of a, a mix, although it goes all the way back to the pre-iOS days when it was just looking at the best Mac apps of the year. And unlike something where you'd see like maybe like a Macworld Editor's Choice Award where it was looking for best value in a product or something like that. These are really looking at what are the best apps that are taking advantage of Apple technologies, because that's what WWDC really focuses on. The Apple Design Award itself is very much an Apple-designed object. It's a solid block of aluminum with a glowing white Apple logo. And, uh, you know, separate from the, the cachet of the award and what it represents, I think the the objects themselves inspire a little bit of of like Apple hardware lust and I had remembered seeing someone curious enough to take it apart and uh, we found the developers of the app day one who received a well deserved ADA for that app uh, did take theirs apart and posted an image of it uh, using their own service so we'll put a link to that in the show notes one other thing about those Apple Design Awards is that being curious objects another developer. Uh, posted their story of trying to get the physical Apple Design Award home, which was was not particularly easy because they had to take a flight home and go through TSA security in the United States. And uh, they said that they had just kind of, you know, like wrapped it up in a T-shirt and threw it in their bag. And then all of a sudden there was this like strange, perfectly square block showing up on the x-ray machine. And then no sooner did they pull it out of the bag than it started glowing. (laughs) So um, that takes me back to the stories of perhaps apocryphal stories of uh, like very early days of laptops. I think that this was a story that was in one of the early Max for Dummies books. I'll see if I can drum up what the source was for that. But it was, you know, someone was traveling with an early power book through, uh, through security before TSA. Uh, and they had to put it through the x-ray machine and they got it through and 
these people had basically never seen a portable computer before. And they said, well, can you like open it up and like turn it on and show us that it's a computer? Cause we don't really quite believe you. And he turned it on. And as soon as he opened up the lid and turned it on, he had a system error because this was system seven. Oh no. And you know what that means. And it brings up the little bomb image. And, and of course, the uh the the person whose computer crashed not thinking says oh no a bomb <laughs> <laughs> and um they spent a lot longer at airport security than they had hoped after that yeah one other thing about WWDC through history to note is its popularity and i think we kind of take for granted now that it's just an extremely popular must attend event and that just even being in proximity to WWDC, just being in San Francisco the week of, of the event is something that's a destination for people in this community. And it hasn't always been that way. Uh, WWDC was a kind of calm, quiet event for many, many years. And uh, we went back and looked at a lot of the keynote presentations for these earlier uh, earlier editions of WWDC and one of the things that they do, traditional Apple move at the beginning of any keynote, is to do a rundown of the numbers. Uh, although they've gotten away from that a little bit in the past year or so, uh, because they've got more exciting stuff to get to. <laughs> but uh, there were a few of them where uh, Steve Jobs would, or whoever was presenting, would get up on on the stage and go, you know, we have a 12% increase in attendance from last year, or a 20% increase in attendance from the year prior. Uh, because they weren't actually selling out the event. And uh, the event has, has also moved a couple times now. I, I guess this year we can now say a couple times to accommodate more people. For a while, it was held in the San Jose Convention Center, which makes sense, pro closer proximity to Apple Campus. And because WWDC takes so many Apple engineers out of their desks on campus and into the labs, into the sessions you would want it to be as convenient for them as possible. Uh, people have talked, I think, this year about would Apple ever consider having another developer event maybe somewhere else or moving WWDC to another city? And the it's just impossible. You can't pick up the entire company and move them, hundreds or thousands of people. They all need to be in the place where they live and bring the developers to them. So it was in San Jose for a while, and... Uh, then it moved in 2003. Uh, they actually rescheduled it, so it looked like they were exceeding their capacity and wanted to move into a larger venue. And that was when it moved to Moscone Center in uh, basically downtown San Francisco. And uh, this year, they've added a satellite venue of the Bill Graham Auditorium, which is an even larger venue for the keynote and, as you mentioned, Brian, the bash, uh, so that they can fit I think, what can they fit, like 5,000 people in there? Something like that? It's a it, it's like a very large indoor music venue. But that meant that, you know, there weren't thousands and thousands of people attending WWDC for many years, for, for most of its history, to be honest. And uh, the first year that it sold out was in 2008. And, you know, they said at the keynote, it sold out before we all got here. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, and then things started ramping up exponentially. And it makes sense because 2008, that was the first WWDC after the iPhone was on the market. And then because of the 
app economy, app store, gold rush, being an Apple developer was something that was suddenly far more desirable than it had been when you're talking almost exclusively about Mac development, which had been all of the uh, all of the history of WWDC up to that point, from 85 to 2007. And that's also independently distributing your software, not even going through an Apple Mac app store. Exactly. So this was really about support for development as opposed to support for the whole process of of selling software. Being an Apple developer didn't mean that you necessarily had a business relationship with Apple. Whereas today, that's the vast majority of cases. I mean, obviously, you know, there's the whole thing in recent years with developers getting fed up with the App Store and trying to leave as much as possible, obviously impossible on iOS. But on the Mac, it's tenuous. Uh, maybe they'll write the ship this year. Who knows? <laughs> um, but so 2008 was the first sellout, and then it got crazy fast. Uh, 2009, they sold out in about a month. 2010 took 10 days, because we went month to days, uh, about a third of the time. 2000, like I said, this is an exponential curve. 2011, they sold out in less than a day, 12 hours. 2012, two hours, so a factor of 10. Um, 2013, they sold out in, no one is entirely sure because it was such a short time. Some records put it at about two minutes. <laughs> Which is crazy. Insane for, for you know, 5,000 tickets. Although, it happens for all kinds of popular events. Um, just here uh, in Ann Arbor, they had the uh, softball regionals, and their stadium holds about 2,500 people, and they sold out tickets in four minutes. So, like, if you have an extremely popular event and you only have 4,000 tickets, that's totally possible. But it meant that the popularity was getting to be far, far, far too much. Because, especially because it wasn't the type of ticket sale where you say to you announce to people, okay, tickets are going on sale at 9 a.m. on Friday, like a big concert would sometimes is. You know, you want to get, uh, you want to get tickets to the Taylor Swift concert. You got to be like sitting in front of your computer with the Ticketmaster site open at the at the appointed moment, which has been pre-announced. But with WWDC, they don't even announce the dates until very late in the game. People have criticized them for that this year. I think it was what six weeks ago that even just the dates of the conference were confirmed. So people are buying airplane tickets on speculation, basically. Yeah, and reserving hotels and every yeah. Right. I mean hotels are refundable, so you're okay for that. But you know, buying a non-refundable plane ticket, especially people coming from Europe, Australia, Asia, like all over the world, that's a huge just bet to hope that you could get <laughs> go to the event. And then now from 2014 onwards, you have to enter a lottery to get tickets. This makes sense in one respect because, you know, it's not, first of all, it doesn't crush Apple's system, um, which of course was running on web objects. <laughs> um, so it doesn't crush the system. You have a, t you have a window in which you can enter the lottery, but it does mean that people are going to miss out on being able to attend WWDC for the full week. And, uh, this means that a lot of events have sprung up around WWDC in San Francisco, uh, the week of the event. And very cool move by Apple this year was that they, they kind of had a uneasy relationship with those events, especially AltConf in the past couple of years, 
But this year, Apple's like, look, we recognize that we're not, you know, we, we can't fill capacity and these other events are part of our community. And they actually like plugged some of them on the developer website, which was a very classy move, I thought. And so now let's get into discussing some of the uh, key technologies and big announcements, both hardware and software that came out of WWDC's uh, more distantly past and recently past. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I saw as a dividing line in trying to do research on this is that before the return of Steve Jobs to Apple, there's very, very little information. And, and I mean, I guess that just kind of coincides with the development of the open web and uh, you know what is what is searchable and what was being recorded, broadcast, etc. That lives on, on on YouTube these days, but. We're going to start in 1995. 1997 was Jobs' return to Apple, and we'll we'll actually get into that in some greater detail later. But before that, this was really a small parochial event for Apple developers who were interested in furthering technologies on the Mac. And when you think about that group of developers, sure, there are uh, some larger shops that have cross-platform software like Microsoft Office, Adobe Photoshop, but the in the mid, early to mid nineties, you know, like windows 95 is out and the PC is, is quote unquote winning. Um, so the, the, like the faithful who are coming to WWDC every summer to learn about what's next for them and the software they're developing for the Mac are like, they're, they're probably few and far between. And so, like I said, we'll, we'll start with 1995's WWDC. Uh, the big thing to come out of this was OpenDoc, which we will talk about later again uh, when we get to Steve Jobs coming back. And OpenDoc was like the weird paradigm of like it's it's the file that kind of dictates its its structure. It's not that this is a, something created in Excel. No, the file is the file. It can have a spreadsheet component. It can have a word processing component. Um, it doesn't matter like which application or even which application feature uh, birthed it. Yeah, we talked about OpenDoc in a little bit more detail on our Clarisworks episode because it, as a as a unified suite, an office suite, uh, borrowed some of those same, uh, well, actually, it originated some of those ideas of having different frames for different types of media or different purposes within a single document. But this was supposed to bring it to developers to say that you know your app the, the type of content that your app creates can live anywhere and there's a fun little side story on the wikipedia page for opendoc that says that uh in at wwdc in 1991 there were actually a group of developers not even first party apple employees that got together and tried to uh bring this paradigm to life. So it, it, if you believe that story, um, a version at least of OpenDoc was born kind of out of discussions at one WWDC and four years later released to the developer public as a, like an official Apple product, which is pretty cool. Uh, the next year in 1996, the big topic of discussion was Copeland, Apple's next desktop OS. We desperately wanted it to be OS 8. Uh, but it, it never came around. We know that Copeland was a horribly, horribly mismanaged product. You know, we, we weren't inside Apple, but there def have definitely been the comments that said that it just 
kept going in circles, never got off the ground. There were lots of great technologies there that never coalesced into a working operating system. Of course, we did get the uh, the Platinum interface, which which came out nice and early, and, and especially because, uh, I, and I'm sure that this was one of the major advantages of something like WWDC in early days, was that you could go and you could do things hands-on. And you could see new technologies, hands, you could actually see them operate. And that seems kind of silly today. Well, if, okay, we could watch a video, we can see it. And, and, and then, you know, we can just distribute the developer release software over the internet and you can have it the next day. Uh, but if in 1996, you're only, for us who are on the outside, who are not developers, the only thing that we saw of Copeland was magazine articles. And so we saw those sweet screenshots of the Platinum interface, and we all wanted that, and we all went and downloaded Aaron, and then later uh, Kaleidoscope, so that we could have that even in System 7, then uh, OS, Mac OS 7.5 point whatever. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, hands-on stuff, and when I was reading about uh, the the little information that was out there about this particular WWDC, a lot of people were like, yeah, we could do hands-on with whatever like stable, using that word loosely, build of Copeland was out there. But there were things like, it was clearly not ready. Um, I think one account talked about how uh, dialog boxes couldn't accept keyboard input, so you couldn't save anything. <laughs> uh, you couldn't name files to save them. So try writing code in that. <laughs> Exactly, and and that uh, like the file system ding was uh, was like woefully incomplete, and uh, Apple engineers were just used to reformatting hard disks at the end of the day to like prepare for the next set of hands-on demos the next day because the the disk would just get hosed through a <laughs> with an incomplete file system losing place of stuff. God, they must have been up all night. It just sounds like a disaster. But like you said, we did get some sweet screenshots of the Platinum interface and. Uh, it that didn't go away. We got to see it eventually in what ended up being OS 8. Another thing that's important to mention about the classic Mac development is that before OS 10, Apple was not offering an integrated development environment. There was no Xcode, obviously. The, the X in Xcode comes from OS 10. Um, but that meant that anyone who was developing Mac software seriously or even as a hobby, was using some third-party software to get that done. And so you know, there was there was MetroWorks Code Warrior, people were programming in Mac Pascal. There was this very fragmented universe of, of ways that you could actually get code running on the Mac. And so not only was Apple trying to promulgate its new APIs, but also, you know, there there had to be ways of actually hooking into that with third-party software. And and one person would come up and ask a question about the API, and another person would come up and ask a question about the API, and they'd be possibly handling it in completely different ways. It was a very different world. And it's, you know, of course there are pros and cons to Apple having total lockdown control over not only the OS, but also the way that you can develop on that OS beyond, you know, simple scripting. And uh, it, but it it definitely colors the way that a WWDC presentation can be made because something like that State of the Union address, you know, they're never going to show Xcode in the keynote because the the journalists who are there that like their minds will explode. 
But I remember, I well, actually, I think when they first introduced Swift, Swift 1.0, they showed playgrounds really quickly in the keynote because it was visual and it was it, it you could understand it. But then I remember watching last year in the State of the Union, like half of the time was just like a live screen sharing session in key in Xcode. And, you know, like code was being typed onto the live, you know, onto the live demonstration on stage. Um, so that's something that Apple has a benefit that they can they can leverage that and just just explain this is the way you do it. And that brings us to WWDC summer of 1997. This is fresh off of Apple acquiring Next and bringing Steve Jobs back into the fold. So, of course, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, we we're, we just got out of a year where they talked about Copeland, and now it's clear that the Next Step operating system and, and being molded into OpenStep and Rhapsody is the new clear direction forward. But I think uh, what we'd like to talk about coming out of this WWDC is a Q&A, a very open Q&A with some weird and, and kind of attacking questions uh, with Steve Jobs, fresh off of coming back. I think let's get through a few more years of history and then come back to this. I'll admit that this is this is kind of a good excuse for putting together this episode because this is, I think in the entire known history of WWDC, this is a singular event and one that is a really important event in Apple history. And I don't know exactly how it came to be other than the fact that Jobs' role at back at Apple after Next was folded in was, you know, he was he was CEO at Next, but he was clearly not going to take over as CEO immediately upon their acquisition. Uh, at, but his role at Apple was he was asked to basically be special advisor to Gil Emilio, who was CEO at the time. So he had this great degree of autonomy and ability to speak his mind, at least in the private setting within Apple, but this event gave him the ability to speak in a public forum, and we will come back to it in just a little bit because it is it it is exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> Moving along in history, though, uh, the next year was also a very very interesting year for WWDC, and one that situates it in terms of Apple's year as a whole, like what what they saw the the calendar year as being in terms of the events that they hosted. So. The WWDC keynote in 1998, I did not realize this. Um, and this is a good follow-up for our uh, previous episode on the iMac G3. The WWDC keynote in 98 was five days after the special event that introduced the iMac. In 2016, that makes absolutely no sense. We're recording this on Wednesday before WWDC, and that would be like if Apple held a special event yesterday. <laughs> Although, to be fair, they kind of did that today. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was much, much more minor than uh, than introducing the original iMac, but Apple did today it's kind of surprise everyone by saying, eh, the keynote's over full and we have more announcements, so here's some new info from Phil Schiller about the App Store. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about that on all of your other favorite Apple podcasts, uh, which deal with the present and the future. So we won't go into that. But yeah, the iMac is here. And uh, one of the things that has been announced at this point is that 
Rhapsody is transforming into OS X server, and that, of course, there will also be OS X consumer, and that these new consumer machines will eventually be able to run OS X. And, oh, yes, by the way, development for OS X, it being, you know, it being Unix and and next step and open step components is entirely different than all all Mac development in the past. We've touched on you know this part of the OS X transition in previous shows, like uh, the elimination of resource forks, every developer's and and power user's best friend out the door. And so it sounds like even though the Mac community was extremely excited, and oh, we didn't do follow up at the top of the show, but. Uh, if you enjoyed the last episode with Stephen Hackett on the iMac G3 uh, upgrade with Jason oh, yes. Snell and uh, and Mike Hurley, also went into some of the history of the iMac G3 with Stephen as a special guest there as well. And there's some overlap between the shows, but uh, I think Jason's perspective as a journalist who was covering this stuff in 1998 was particularly great. So we'll link that up in the show notes. And one of the things was that the iMac special event, he, he said that it was like Boy Who Cried Wolf because there had been all these special events that were fit for things like Open Dock. And they were like, oh, come on, guys. Like, you know, they would introduce these minor technologies, minor hardware revisions. And then the iMac invitation came and Macworld sent like one guy there. <laughs> um, and I guess this also puts it in context that they knew that WWDC was also coming up. And so, like, how special could this special event be? Well, you know, it was the special event that saved Apple <laughs> in in one respect. Um, but then it was almost like for the developers, they had to do damage control on this, even though the journalists and the Mac community at large was extremely excited for the iMac and the things to come. And from there, things, of course, took off again. Uh, things moved quickly after the introduction of the iMac. We talked about that last episode, that they were just r- revving them constantly, six months, eight months. And uh, things for the structure of the company moved quickly, too. Steve Jobs took on the ICEO title. And then in 1999, he walked out onto the stage at WWDC with that title in big letters. That, that was the first slide of the keynote. It says, Steve Jobs, ICEO. Like, here I am. <laughs> I'm going to be presenting these things for the foreseeable future. <laughs> um, and one of the things that was interesting about 99 was the fact that it was really in the throes of the OS 9, OS 10 transition, and that the demos that happened in that keynote were OS 9 and OS 10 side by side. Like, it, Also, looking back at these earlier videos, it was interesting to see how Apple has managed the hardware on stage as the keynotes evolved in the earlier demos, it was kind of clear that they would set up one machine for every particular demo, like one machine per feature, just to make sure that it was going to work properly and just kind of go down the line. Whereas now we think of, Oh, well they have like one Mac on stage and then there's, there's one next to it. That's the backup in case, like, I don't know, like, like the hard drive, seizes up spontaneously or kernel panics or something. Um, 
you know, they have one backup, but here there were these multiple machines uh, next to each other. But it was necessitated here for for the ninety nine keynote because they needed to have an OS nine box and an OS ten box. You know, <laughs> there were some things that they did in those demos that took an inordinate amount of time. Where <laughs> we talked about this, like you know, watch iTunes encode this file, yeah, <laughs> or like they 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 had demos where. In an era where you could be wowed by the speed of a progress bar, they would let you sit through that 30 seconds of progress bar, but they were not going to wait for a machine to dual boot back from OS 9 to OS 10. So they had multiple machines uh, set up for that. And at this point, those were, they were either G3 or G4 towers. I think, it was, I think it was G4 towers at this point. So the graphite um, and a couple of those standing side by side. And I know that we we keep bringing this up and we will get to it, but the, the Steve Jobs Q&A video in 1997 is also interesting for this reason because he's in front of maybe like a dozen beige Macs with huge beige CRTs because he's, you know, he's on that same stage. And yeah, even back then, uh, it was clear that they had, you know, like you just said, uh, a machine for each feature, a machine for each demo, not one that we can trust to get through the entire day's worth of demonstrations without breaking down. But that was the classic Mac. I mean, yep. yep. I mean, things could break at a moment's notice. So that was 1999, where OS 9 and OS 10 were side by side, and the next few WWDCs really did focus on like OS 10 is maturing, and here it is. Now it's time for release. Like in 2000, OS 10 was up to Developer Preview 4, and of course it's WWDC. So of course let's let's show the developers a preview. I think that was about in the era where like. Either there was like a DVD under your seat or you could like go out into the lobby area and they would like transfer it over over Ethernet to to your machine. Yeah. And then in 2001, OS 10 had been publicly released for consumers uh, shortly before WWDC. And the conference also focused on the server version. Um, and then we get to 2002. Ah, uh, the end of the line for the classic Mac OS. Which happened in one of the absolute weirdest events in Apple Keynote history. Yeah, this is like a rare bit of like over-the-top theatricality where, and, and you know, like, and this is coming from the company who has like machines rise from the floor on internally lit pedestals that spin. Spinning around, bringing out the remote camera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but no, when it was time to say stop developing for Mac OS 9, uh, <laughs> a, a giant casket came out on stage with you know like dry ice fog and everything yeah smoke machines <laughs> and um and a huge spooky halloween music <laughs> yes and uh and a oversized software box for mac os 9 is laid to rest inside the casket and and steve jobs delivered the eulogy <laughs> yeah it is it is truly one of the most most bizarre things that has happened in in WWDC or really in Apple history. <laughs> um, from then on, we're in the OS 10 era pretty solidly, and we, we certainly won't cover every year from then on. Um, I'm, I'm sure that many listeners have, like us, been following WWDC from, from about this time onward, or at least in the last few years. So we, we want to pull out a, a, a few uh, favorite and uh, perhaps least favorite moments of some of the keynotes is still still kind of going in order here. And so in 2003, uh, we were up to OS X Panther, 
And one of the neat features that was introduced with that was the video chat features in iChat AV and the iSight camera that went along with it. And to demonstrate this, I mean, there have been these kind of celebrity appearances in keynotes since then. But this was the this was the first one that I know of where uh, Steve Jobs did an iChat video with Al Gore, <laughs> spurious inventor of the internet. <laughs> so it all made sense. And they talked about, you know, like Apple's great new technology and the environment and very typical Al Gore things. <laughs> Do you think he was on the board at that point, the Apple board? Okay, so it was like, welcome, welcome to the team, Al. <laughs> yeah, he joined in 2003. And we've covered actually some of the things uh, in more recent WWDCs on previous episodes of the show, like the Intel transition, which we covered in January. And that was in 2005. Yep. Uh, the the most recent WWDC that really had an effect on me was 2010, um, because that was the iPhone 4, which carried a lot of stuff with it. First, it was on the heels of Gizmodo actually getting one and kind of spoiling the surprise for everybody. And Steve even alludes to it in the keynote where he says like, you know, stop me if you've seen this before. Uh, but it was also, that was the first retina display, which uh, like I think is one of the the biggest advances in Apple computing, like hardware wise. Like I know um, I'm still waiting for <laughs> like one of those Skylake 13 inch laptops, whatever it's called. I don't care, but I'm going to update to a machine with the retina display this year. But Ed, you have a, you have a retina iMac and I, I do, I can just like, I can just assume that once you have it everywhere, like why would you ever use anything less? Oh yeah. And it's totally been the gating factor in when I buy things. <laughs> uh, since then, like I, I, my only iPad still to date, it's due for replacement is the third gen because because I waited for Retina. I wanted to read on it, and that that was the huge difference. Um, I wasn't considering buying an iMac until they came out Retina, and especially the 4K as opposed to the 5K size. My parents have the 5K size, and I visited them recently and sat down in front of it. It's, like, it's huge, <laughs> which is great for some people, but I wanted the smaller size. Um, so yeah, it's one of those must-have features that eventually percolates uh, through the through the product line, and a, a really big revolutionary one. Um, I talked on Pico Mac this past week about uh, True Tone, which I yes. think is probably going to be the next one of these things that, like, why why would any device that Apple sells that has a screen not have True Tone in the future? I, I totally agree. Um, and some other things. Uh, 2010 was the year that the first iPad came out, so of course, what had been called iPhone OS was renamed iOS. And I remember having a, a moment of personal, like, oh, I don't like this um, because WWDC, of course, is in the summer. And 2010 was also the year of Twitter's first developer conference named Chirp. Really? Yeah. yeah. That, that's not a thing anymore, is it? Uh, I don't know. It's been sporadic. It was definitely not regular. And I think they still have a developer conference, but it might be more like Digits or Fabric or whatever their, their umbrella term for developer tools is. Um, in any case... The first Chirp conference was like kind of in the spring and it was like neatly between the release of the iPad and WWDC when we would find out about the iPhone 4, um, iOS 4, and so on. So I remember because I was working at Twitter and in the API platform department at the time, like I was at Chirp and if you had an iPad, you were just like the king. 
that day. Um, and I remember being like, oh, and it was it was in the time period where the uh, 3G iPad models hadn't even started shipping. So if you had an iPad, it was Wi-Fi only. And I'm sure we can all agree that conference Wi-Fi is terrible. Um, so like everyone was like ooing and aahing over iPads and, and some people who had already like started to write apps for like Twitter client apps were there showing them off. Um, but towards the end of the day, uh, like the conference Wi-Fi is strained and I'm there on my little old iPhone, I think 3G, not even 3GS, uh, but I've got my 3G connection and I'm like keeping on top of email and uh, being able to relay developers to like uh, new locations or give updates on the schedule that they can't get. And I'm sure they all have phones too, but everyone was just so wrapped up in the iPad uh, that I remember that when like the WWC came around and the iPhone was so cool. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm totally going to get an iPhone four. Uh, but it's, but it's iOS now because the iPad, like we can't, we can't overlook the iPad. I'm like, but, but can we, the iPhone, it's like uh, Marco Arment is always saying on ATP, like don't overlook the smartphone. I think that summer was like, and that spring to summer was, uh, was me realizing like, yeah, the smartphone is the do everything device, no matter how hot the iPad is, uh, at this conference I was at. And that was uh, about the time that iPad development for Twitter apps uh, ceased. <laughs> it's true. It's sad, but true. <laughs> uh, let's move on to a uh, slightly more somber topic, which was the next year, which was 2011. And we couldn't have known this. Uh, well, you could have had a premonition going in uh, to 2011 because the structure of the keynote was a little bit different. Uh, the big announcements that year were Lion, iOS 5, and iCloud. And the OS 10 and iOS portions were handed off to other senior VPs at Apple. And Steve Jobs presented the iCloud portion and was, you could tell that he was in failing health and that, uh, the amount of, the amount of strength and effort that he could put into something like a major keynote presentation, uh, was no longer there. And of course, that was Steve Jobs' final WWDC keynote appearance because he died later that year. Really, it was his final, uh, like broad appearance or presentation, except for maybe presenting like the plans for Apple Campus Two to like the Cupertino City Council, which I remember like was shared widely in the wake of his death as like this is his last thing. But like, as far as real big events and big events like very much coming out of the company he created and loved. Uh, yeah, this 2011 WWDC keynote was the last one. And one of the other things about that keynote was that there was no iPhone announcement, which people were kind of expecting. That was a, that was a WWDC staple at this point. They had established the pattern, uh, but they broke the pattern. And this became the, the, the new way of doing things was by having a special uh, Apple event, fall event for the phone, uh, which is the way that we've continued for the past several years. And so WWEC sometimes gets hardware announcements. Everyone kind of hopes for hardware announcements, but we know that it's yearly release cycles of the major operating systems and they just kind of chug along and, and we expect to see a new version. You can call it a major version. You don't know exactly how major it's going to be, but for each of the Mac and iOS and now tvOS and watchOS. <laughs> um, we expect to see something from each of those every WWDC because that's the platform in which the developers are working. Exactly. And I, and I think this makes a lot of sense. And even if 
uh, hardware that's in the works necessitates some kind of developer changes. And I think the big example that comes to mind is uh, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus screen sizes. They can still allude to that in the software because I think that year some of the most interesting uh, labs and uh, breakout sessions were the, I forget what it's called, but like the the flexible development size for your, like springs and struts or... Display classes. Yes, yeah. Uh, like that was, you know, no one had seen anything relating to actual physical larger hardware, but you could get a sense that that was coming and you were still equipped as a developer to prepare for those different hardware targets later, coming later that year. Yeah, that's something that... <laughs> developers have had to deal with is the fact that they often have to develop for hardware that's not in their hands, even after it's all been fully announced uh, and, and nothing is secret anymore. Uh, you have to go kind of to the simulator. Uh, a couple uh, other favorite moments in, in recent history here. Um, 2013, the new Mac pro finally arrived and uh, this keynote had one of the all time, all-time keynote quotes as Phil Schiller introduced finally the trash can Mac Pro, uh, which was replacing the old cheese grater, which was woefully out of date. And uh, he said that it was so innovative and everyone else uh, had been down on Apple and and just to prove him wrong, (laughs) he told everyone that... Can't innovate anymore, my ass. That's not to say that that keynote was totally flawless, though. Uh, I think... This is my favorite for for absolute dumb waste of time awful <laughs> uh keynote moment in recent history. This was the uh the iOS Bluetooth controlled car demo uh which was called Anki Drive and they brought these two guys on stage and uh they had these little like slot cars that rolled around on a mat and one of them flaked out during the demo and it was <laughs> It's it's bad. It's bad. If you want to just cringe for a few minutes, follow the link in the show notes. Speaking of uh, things that took a lot of time during a WWDC keynote, I think the last thing we want to talk about before we get back into uh, the, the, the one main event we wanted to talk about was uh, last year, 2015, the launch of Apple Music. I'm so mad at Drake. Him and his vintage Apple jacket. So, yes, we all know that last year Drake came out and rambled and Jimmy Iovine came out and rambled and then Eddie Q came out and rambled to tell us all how great Apple Music was going to be. And, uh, yeah, it's been unequivocally fantastic ever since. It didn't screw up my library or anything. Right. And and we were talking about uh, at the very beginning when we talk about how nowadays we have a like a mainstream, a press keynote and we have a like a more developer focused keynote. For the developers who were in attendance last year, like there's nothing in the Apple Music thing for them. No, like the APIs for that are still, they've been open, quote, opening them up in the past couple of months, and they're still extraordinarily simple. It's like you can add a song to a playlist or something. It was poorly timed, both in the sense of how long it took in the moment and like using that stage and that, that meaningful keynote uh, to launch it. Well, maybe we should talk right now then about the fact that WWDC is the primary stage for for Apple in in 2016 and has been for the past several years. And in the earlier days of WWDC, it wasn't such a huge media event for Apple. It was focused more or less exclusively on the developers, and they had other events that were more for 
press and media coverage that were other opportunities apart from special events where they could announce big products. And of course, the biggest of those was the Macworld Expo, uh, which also began in 1985, logically enough. Macworld Magazine launched basically simultaneously with the release of the original Macintosh, and things went on from there. Um, Macworld Expo was interesting because it was more of a trade show format, and but it but it also featured a keynote presentation, which usually was headed by Apple Apple staff, senior Apple staff. And uh, one of the other interesting things about Macworld that one of the advantages that it had that we talked about at the top of the show that WWDC can't have is that it was in multiple locations for for many many years. Uh, so there was uh, there was typically an East Coast and a West Coast MacWorld Expo, and they kind of went like spring fall, so that you would have, um, or actually it was more like a winter summer. Uh, so in San Francisco in the winter when it feels like summer. <laughs> Uh, you can go to, you can go to Macworld Expo there. And then in, uh, in the summer months, there was the East Coast one, which was in Boston for most of its time, uh, from 85 to 98. And then, uh, moved over to New York City. I think it was in the Javits Center there. And then back to Boston for a couple years in 2004 and 2005 before eventually just being retired. And uh, that second run in Boston, um, Apple didn't have an official presence there. And so you can kind of see, like, without without Apple in the picture, uh, how much of a, of a draw is this, uh, certainly the, the East Coast kind of secondary conference. Uh, but Apple also kind of changed the course of the main one, too, um, first by releasing the, the iPod and the iPhone. You know, it's, it's the Macworld Expo, but more and more... Uh, these would come to focus on the kind of iPod ecosystem. I remember uh, a lot of like fun headphones and cases and stuff would be uh, released there and like iLounge would review them in the winter. Um, and then certainly once you have the iPhone and iOS uh, and like even at WWDC, that became the focus. Like we mentioned, one year of Apple Design Awards were just for uh, the more mobile apps. Um, so in 2012, the main Macworld Expo changed to Macworld slash iWorld. And even this was kind of like a last ditch effort to uh, to keep the conference relevant because in 2009, uh, Apple stated like, this is the last one we're going to do. January, February, early 2009 was the last time Apple had an official presence at uh, any Macworld expo. Right. And that meant no keynote. And that also meant no presence on the show floor because it was a trade show. The the biggest booth in the entire show floor was Apple. And that was kind of the central hub and that was removed. And all you had were the spokes. Um, but that meant that, I mean, there are many people who still to this day lament the loss of even the later Macworld iWorld conference, because they saw it as the really the gathering place for the Mac community every year. And, uh, people who talk, I, I had all kinds of intentions when I was, you know, a teenager. Like, I'm going to go to Macworld one of these years. And never made it. <laughs> um, but the people who were there said, you know, 
yeah, there was the big Apple booth, there was the big presentation, but all of the like interesting action was in, I think it was affectionately called Tiny Town, <laughs> which was like where instead of actually renting a booth, you just got like, you know, six by three feet of table <laughs> off in kind of the corner of the, of the convention space. And uh, that was, you know, where all the small like one man development shops were, were trying to hawk their wares. <laughs> One other uh, Macworld event was uh, the Macworld Tokyo conference, which I don't know a whole lot about, except that some interesting announcements were made there by Apple. It seems like it also tended to kick off with a keynote. Uh, Steve Jobs even gave several of the Macworld Tokyo keynotes, of of course, in English. Um, I think they were maybe doing simultaneous translation uh, for, for the attendees. And one of the things that we mentioned there was uh, when iTunes was first released, uh, that came out in January, I think. And then like a month or so later, they went and did Macworld Tokyo for this different audience on the other side of the world. Uh, and they introduced iTunes 1.1, which had a bunch of new features. <laughs> um, but a lot of the rest of that presentation was, they tended to be kind of mirror images of what went on at Macworld in North America. And of course, Apple has its other non-developer centric events uh, I think the one with a longer running tradition is the the fall event, which started off being focused on music and media. And especially the iPod, when Apple was the iPod company. Exactly. The The original iPod was uh, released at a special event in October of 2001. And uh, there were some iTunes events, like I think iTunes for Windows was 2003. And then pretty steadily, I would say, uh, I have here in the notes 2005 to 2010, um, the fall event was like, these are the new iPods for the holiday season. Uh, this is like, we're adding TV shows to the iTunes store. We're adding movies to the iTunes store. It's all about like media consumption. And then we got to 2011 when everyone expected the iPhone 4S to debut at WWDC. It didn't. And so it got to be the star of the fall event show. And ever since then, that's when the kind of new mobile hardware which is less music and media focused and more like iPhone, iPad, uh, maybe even a little bit of TV stuff. That's when we're, we're going to start to see them in this fall event. Except when you got iPads in March. So there's this other <laughs> uh, class of events, the Apple spring events that um, I think for like uh, certainly this year, 2016 and last year, the, like the, the big buzz was around the watch, certainly in 2015, when we actually got to see the watch and, and have the wide release. And even this year, like the watch got new bands and, and some new like sport edition colors, but it was still a, a very big focus before then. Of course it was the iPad. You have the, the iPad two coming out in 2011, the retina iPad, which Ed still has coming out in 2012. <laughs> Um, and there was one fun spring event way back in 2006 that was kind of like a cool hodgepodge of stuff. We've got uh, Intel Mac Minis, fun, uh, expensive leather cases for your iPods, and one of the most maligned Apple products ever, the iPod Hi-Fi at the spring 2006 special event. I'm still hoping that you know, there have been recent rumors about will Apple create like an Amazon Echo competitor and I hope they call it the Hi-Fi. <laughs> Gotta be the iPod Hi- or not the iPod, the Siri Hi-Fi. Who knows? So we're about an hour in. We could we could wrap it up there, except we we've been alluding to this the whole show, <laughs> and uh, we want to roll back the clock to 1997 uh, to this very interesting event that was 
uh, Steve Jobs' first appearance at WWDC after he returned to the company that same year. And this was not the keynote presentation. I believe that this was the Friday. So this was like at the very end of, of WWDC. And they had an open Q&A with Steve Jobs. They just put him up on the stage. He got a little like two-minute introduction. And then they had a mic in the crowd. And they said, ask the man questions. <laughs> Um, and I see this as, you know, this event in many, many, many ways is the beginning of what people are calling now new Apple, which I think is a term that's only come up in maybe like the last two or three years, treating media, the press and the community a little bit differently, managing their products differently. Uh, but this is where that all seems to have started. And the nature of this event is something that then fell out of favor as Apple got known for its secrecy, uh, not speaking to the media, not putting Steve Jobs on CNBC or whatever in that uh, interview right after the uh, right after the iMac was launched, and he, tr- he tries to go and like sell it to people on 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 some business show. Um, so they went quiet for a while, but now we're seeing much more that not maybe the CEO, not Tim Cook, but except when the whole security thing blew up recently that, but um, the senior VPs at Apple are far, far more open to um, doing interviews with people calling up, uh, calling up journalists and saying, Hey, we'd like to talk to you. Uh, And, and this was an event in that same vein. Although certainly, I mean, it was, it was kind of no holds barred. And also the fact that it was live and recorded for posterity uh, it wasn't like, oh, this, you know, we can just go back and say, oh, that's off the record, or no, I'm not going to answer that question, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's a really interesting look at what Apple was going through in the the next transition in the Rhapsody and OS X transition, and the fact that when, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, he thought that they were doing things very badly. <laughs> And before we get into this, I should say, you know, we're going to link to this in, in the show notes. It, it's on YouTube. Um, it's great as either watch or listen. You know, if you can extract the, the audio, it, it, it listens as a podcast. I did that. Uh, I did that recently. And, uh, if, if you're at all interested in, in this period of history, I, I think you should just dedicate the extra hour and, and go through it. You can either do it after, after listening here or, pause us and uh, and go listen to Steve for a while. Uh, so we we won't go into great detail, I guess, because, uh, yeah, it, it is worth listening to in its entirety. Uh, we'll point out a couple of the the really cool stuff that, that has, like, eerie uh, foresight into how the world of computers operates today. This is a, the beginning of a 20-year arc, and we're 19 years into the arc. I mean, St- Steve talked about it in... He was talking in, like, five-year plan, but... It was really looking more like a 20-year plan, to be honest. And so one of the first things he says that I don't think was prompted by a question, but more of him setting the stage for how the, the Q&A session was going to go, is that he thinks Apple's like core ethos, core focus, is about making great products. And this is a thing that comes up in a lot of his answers. Uh, like One of the first questions is about OpenDoc. Someone says, like, what about OpenDoc? And Steve's literal answer is, what about it? It's dead. He apologizes for it. He says, he's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you spent time developing for that. But um, 
No. <laughs> and he gets back into it. Like Apple is about making great products. We've got to like figure out what, what we're good at. Um, we make hardware that, that is really well designed and hardware that people like to use software that people like to use. And, uh, and if something doesn't meet those standards, we're not going to push it out anymore. And uh, so I thought that the, like him, him laying that out there at the start. And then one of the first questions, him just being able to use that, uh, it really does set the tone for a lot of these, a lot of these questions. One of the next ones actually kind of ties even further into it where, um, he, he says a line that I think has been attributed to him many times since then, where he says like focus, a lot of people think focus is about what you're saying yes to, but focus is more about saying no and being able to, to cut the, the wheat from the chaff and focus in on just a few key things. And again, these are the great products, the things that we're good at. Yeah. Then he gets into the actual vision of what a great product in 1997 and onward would look like. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is uh, his attitude in this a lot is he's like, I don't know where you guys have been for the past for the past several years, but I've been at Next and we've been living in the future. And one of the things that he says, he explains this to the developers who are obviously technically informed, know a lot about the Mac platform. Uh, and he says that you know, the future is network computing. And that the Mac has all these proprietary networking things, you know, Mac TCP DNR and all that. <laughs> um, and that the Mac needs to be able to, to more seamlessly network because if you live in a networked world, your life is so much easier. And he goes on this whole thing about, um, you know, he says, well, in next step, we have these things that we call home directories. Oh, okay. <laughs> and everyone in the crowd goes, oh, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> of course, we are, are all familiar with our home directories now in OS X. Um, and he says, that they basically had a networked setup where you didn't have a local home directory. Everything was was over the network, local network or wide area network. And uh, I guess with the file sizes and types of files that they were working at at that point, this was like the superior solution. And he was looking for thin clients. And uh, and he talks about backup. He says, how many of you people back up your computers? How often? How often have you lost data? And he's like, well, I've never lost data because it's all on a server and it's all backed up. And this is the thing that we're all kind of still striving towards. But in many respects, you know, look at iCloud backup on iOS devices. Is it flawless? Absolutely not. Does it cover everything? No. Do people not turn it on or not or have it turned off for them because they exceed the free storage? Yes, but that was that was the vision. You know, iCloud backup was the vision that was being put forward to these people's and and Steve Jobs is saying this exists on the next platform. This is going to be Apple's platform. This is going to happen for people, and we're going to bring it to more people. That was that, that was another thing about um, you know he, he gets into several numbers in there, and he was saying the number of people who are working in this kind of networked world in '97 numbered in the thousands, and the total Mac install base numbered in the millions. And so he was saying that that was a huge opportunity to go from thousands to millions. And of course, now some of these very same features like iCloud Backup, we now know that that approaches 1 billion in terms of install base. So like, he was not seeing that. That, that, that was beyond what, what could be even extravagantly predicted in 1997, but it's, it's where we went with these very same ideas. And it's interesting to hear this um, in light of 
the little bit of like the Dropbox story where probably 10 or so years after this 1997 Q&A, there was apparently a, a moment where Apple was considering acquiring Dropbox. It's not a product, it's a feature. Exactly. And and uh, the their founder, I think Drew Houston, or Houston, however you pronounce his name. I don't know if he's like Texas or New York. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I don't know if he was if how he was pitching, you know, Dropbox strength as a as a standalone brand or a standalone product. But yeah, Jobs had that famous line where it's like Dropbox and and this paradigm of of like a server centric backup that you can get to from any client. It's not like that's not a standalone thing. That's just a feature because that is like he's like this is just a feature of our platform. This should be how computers work. It doesn't. It shouldn't be like one company that provides this as an option. It should be how computers work. Yeah, and if it's really just how computers work, it's it's a little bit more than a feature. It may not be a product, but it's like a way of life. And that 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 was what Jobs was putting forward in ninety seventies. Like there is a better way of life. You don't realize it, but you know you're living in mud huts, and uh, <laughs> and we've got indoor plumbing and air conditioning over at Next, and we're bringing it to you. Yeah, uh, some another question. Uh, is is kind of broad and it's like, what do you see are the holes in Apple's strategy? And he's like, I'm going to give you the same answer. Um, but one of the things that he got to elaborate on in this version of the answer is uh, he's like, you know, you know, it's just coming down the pike, gigabit Ethernet. <laughs> I'm so excited for gigabit Ethernet, which is like, yeah, it's a great, uh, it's crazy high speeds um, that certainly would make transferring files uh, like m- music and m- movies and things that we are used to today. Uh, back then, yeah, you need to do that. But it's crazy to think that he was, he had this, you know, like crazy vision for the future and he was excited about gigabit ethernet when now we've got our LTE connections and streaming Netflix over our phones, like through space. Right. And he was also talking about his, his T1 line that he had installed in his house. And, you know, that was like, Ooh, fancy internet for the time, but T1, you know, <laughs> that's one megabit. <laughs> Um, so he was again, looking like multiple of a thousand and talking about that as opportunity. A lot of the developers felt burned in this Q and a session because it seemed like Apple was turning a corner and leaving technologies behind that they had sunk time into. And, and Steve jobs was all about seeing this as positive and opportunities. So one of the things that, uh, developers like, what kind of applications am I supposed to make? Like what, what is happening? He's like, uh, have you heard uh, Microsoft saying that they're going to write apps for Rhapsody? No. How about Adobe? No. Uh, maybe you should eat their lunch. And like, obviously that didn't happen in the OS X, early OS X era, but that kind of thing has happened since. I mean, I was thinking about, he's like, you should build a better Photoshop. Do you know how many copies of a Photoshop Adobe ships every month? Bazillions! And what do we have today? We have apps like Pixelmator on iOS and Mac, and we have Acorn on the Mac. And they're independent developers, just like the people who were who thought that their their lives were over in in 1997. And they're making a go of it. I know it's hard, you know, indie, indie developer lifestyle is hard in 2016, maybe getting better. Um, but that's exactly the kind of thing that has happened since then is that real competitors to like huge software behemoths that seemed unapproachable for for the individuals at WWDC. It's it's actually happened. It wasn't because of the Rhapsody platform. It was another generation down the line with the iOS platform, but we got there. You know, we've we've been talking about how just how prescient 
a lot of the things in in this talk were. And, you know, they're not exactly prescient uh, because Steve says, oh, he says multiple times in in the Q&A session, he's like, I'm just an advisor. Uh, I don't make the decisions here. Don't ask me for whether this is going to happen or not because not on me. It's on Gil and board and everyone else. Uh, they're great, but not my call to make. And of course, within a year, it was totally his call to make because Emilio was shown the door. <laughs> but so he prefaced a lot of his answers that way. Um, so were they prescient? No, he had these ideas and then he went and implemented them. Um, and, and like remarkable track record for how many of these things not only came to fruition, but were successful. One of the things that was a little bit different was uh, there were lots of questions about the the Mac clones. That I, and I think we should get into the the clones as a, like a full episode sometime. Yes, yeah. But Steve Jobs' idea of the clones uh, at this point, when he had just rejoined Apple, was a little bit different than what happened. He said, "I believe Apple should license everything." But he said they they needed to get a fair price for it. The clone program was limiting the companies that were developing the Macintosh compatible computers. Uh, <laughs> I think I think Steve Jobs thought "clone" was a derogatory term and and used used it deliberately. <laughs> um, but he said that, you know, they were being hamstrung on the hardware and they weren't being charged enough on the software. And he thought that changing up that relationship with the, the clone makers would be sustainable going forward. Clearly, um, once he got into the ICEO and CEO position, uh, he realized that presumably he was advised by someone in his business team that uh, making those business changes was probably not particularly viable either. And that was, and then the transition uh, to OS 8 was a nice clean break where they just said, we're not going to license OS 8. You bought a license for System 7. One of the things that he does say in here, though, that, oh man, this is just this is so good. <laughs> um, he wanted the, the clone makers to have more flexibility in terms of the hardware instead of having to buy hardware from Apple. Just kind of put it in a new case, give it some extra RAM or something. <laughs> um, and he said, he was touting that Rhapsody was kind of cross-platform, that is, cross-hardware platform, because of what they had been working on at Next and what they were going to do at Apple. He said about the clone makers... They could build Rhapsody boxes with Intel processors in them if they wanted to. And uh, pretty much uh, they shut down the clone programs, but that's exactly what Apple did, because Rhapsody became OS X server, which then got folded in and became OS X. And then in 2005... Basically on the uh, on the same stage, not the exact same stage, but the same venue, uh, the same event. Uh, he says, "Here we are. Guess what? OS X's been living a double life. I told you back in 1997. Build a Rhapsody box with Intel inside, and here it is. And uh, still using those. Basically, <laughs> there's a there's a question asked that has like particular relevance for this year, this 2016." Uh, because Amazon has the Echo, Google has Google Home, and everyone's making software assistants. Apple has, like, uh, of course, Apple has Siri, and more recently has like proactive Siri. Uh, so all these these assistants, both hardware and software, that can do tasks for us. And someone in the crowd at this Q and A asks, like, when are we going to have computers that go out and do the work for us? And this question kind of throws Steve because at first he's like, I don't even know how to how to answer it. And so he talks about, uh, uh, he kind of goes back to like, look, the importance is being on the network. The importance is, is getting the Mac out of just being confined to your desk and letting it talk to other Macs. 
but he kind of capitulates and says, uh, this kind of work, the, the computer as an agent he uses for you is in a research stage right now. We're going to work on our network computers and these agents come later. And I think a lot of people are waiting to see like, what is Apple going to do in this space in 2016? So it's, it's cool to hear that question in 1997 uh, come up again in the present time. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the format of this Q&A session was, you know, I've been to many like large Q&A sessions, especially if you have a high profile speaker like this. And um, either they have like microphones that you have to walk up to and they have someone who's like ushering people or they have a, a, a mobile mic and they and you have someone who gives it to the person and then immediately takes it away. But this was not the case. The people had had this opportunity to almost banter back and forth with Steve Jobs. And in this um, this question, the the person who was asking it clarified and said, "Well, no, like the Mac interface now is you click once and it does one thing, and you click again and it does another thing. And I want to like click and walk away and have a whole bunch of stuff happen. And so it was more like automation on the on the Mac. And this is something that Apple has never, you know." Steve Jobs didn't seem particularly enthused about it then, and it's something that they've always given kind of a half-hearted effort towards. I mean, AppleScript existed at this point. AppleScript still exists, uh, but it hasn't been the answer to like really robust automation. And this notion of I click once or I press one keyboard command and several things happen contextually in order, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I use Keyboard Maestro for now, but that's still like, that's a that's a power user or developer level feature. And it was just like, that's that's not part of the great product here. Oh, one other thing about the 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 questions and answers is that um somewhat regrettably, uh Steve Jobs uh you know calls on some of the people in the crowd and he says the word sir many times in this, which he's being nice, he's being deferential, but every single speaker. In this entire thing, in the entire Q and A session, is a man, and like it's, it was clear that there were, there were essentially zero women in the room at WWDC in '97, and and that's a shame. And I know that it's still, it's still a little bit rough in terms of the diversity numbers, but things are are certainly improving. And I know that especially some of the satellite conferences that are that are around WWDC have uh, some diversity initiatives this year and are. Trying to push up that attendance. I also know that what's there's there's a uh, I don't remember the name of the group, but I know that there's um, an annual meeting of of women in attendance at WWDC mm. that is an an unofficial group that that gathers every year. And of course, we're we're trying to we're trying to get there in terms of in terms of representation, gender, and and race and culture and everything else. Uh, but it was definitely a even though this was a great event, uh, the this Q and A session, it was definitely a bunch of white men in a room. <laughs> uh, I think we'll close with with uh, one of the final questions asked because it starts as one thing and turns into another very prescient. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> and it it also has the most dismissive comments from from Steve in the entire thing. So the question is uh, basically like, what do you think about the Newton? What is the status and and future of the Newton? And this one, he did not. He did not equivocate one bit. He's like, sucks. <laughs> yeah, I think he said like, I, I tried one of the earlier ones. It sucked. 
I hear they made a new one. I I, I bought one. It was garbage. I threw it out. <laughs> he, literally, he literally says I threw it out. Um, yeah, I bought another one with a cell modem in it. Garbage. Threw it out. <laughs> and he says, I, I, I heard the new ones are better. <laughs> but he's clearly not going to use one. And the developers saying, try one, try one. Um, but we know that the, the Newton program was not long for the world. And to be honest, um, you know, he thought it didn't meet the needs of being a great product, but he had a really good business case as well for why he didn't want Apple to keep going with the Newton. And he said, he's like, the Newton is entirely different. It's an entire different operating system. It's a separate software and hardware stack as he as he calls it and he says most even well-functioning large technology companies they have a hard time maintaining their one software stack two almost nobody can pull off and he says and now we have to because we have classic mac os and rhapsody going into the future and the Newton OS was the third one. And he's like, three, there's absolutely no way that we can carry forward with three operating systems. Except this is one of this is the other other big thing that he that he might have gotten wrong in terms of this this broader 20-year arc for Apple. Today, Apple has four operating systems. And yes, three of them have iOS underpinnings and all of them have the Darwin underpinnings, the, the, the BSD Unix underpinnings, uh, that unify them in some very, very low level fundamental ways. But there's no doubt that Apple is supporting four major platforms today. And people, people have been questioning and criticizing, is that tenable? They're basically asking the same question that Steve Jobs was saying. They're, well, they're asking the question where he was answering it and saying, no, like two max, absolutely max too. Um, but they've got four running now, and uh, it, it's it's an open question as to as to how that goes. I think you know if if, if anything's gonna fall off, it's gonna be the TV. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, he brings it all back around again to the issue of, of networking and connectivity. And like you said, Ed, he he even says like I tried to get like a Motorola or probably wasn't a handspring or something, but like, you know, uh, something similar to this that had a modem in it. Right. Cause this was a thing like the Palm OS then had the handspring and third party, uh, handsets, uh, later on, uh, the Newton OS, this was during the same time as the, the Mac OS licensing and clone program. Um, you could license Newton OS and make your own hardware for it. And so, uh, basically the only one that had an embedded cellular connection, was a Motorola device, and we'll, we'll uh, look up the exact model of that and see if we can put a link to that in the in the show notes. I know that the the Apple branded Newtons. I think they some of them had external cellular capability. Yeah, or like an expansion slot that you could put something in. Exactly, but but this was a an integrated device, and clearly that was what that was what Steve Jobs wanted. Yeah, and so he he brings it back around like earlier introducing the the broad concept of networking and connectivity he he said that the the mac um is is too proprietary and uh like you know it's it's isolated um and the newton is the same way and he's he has a fun quote he's like i don't think the world's about keeping my life on this little thing and 
IRing it into my computer when I get back to my base station. I think that, that to me, what I want is this little thing I carry around with me. <laughs> Just like Steven said last episode about the yeah. little IRDA port. That's the, the same port that we were talking about last time that was on the original iMac and uh, and then was not because what the heck good is it? Uh, but really, Steve says what he wants is, uh, again, like the little thing, a pocket-sized device that is connected to the internet all the time and has a keyboard. So he can do things that that inquire that require a lot of typing, like email. He he talks about email a lot. So if somebody would just make a little thing where you're connected to the net at all times, and you got a little keyboard like an e-mate with a modem in it, I God, I'd love to buy one. Well, three out of four ain't bad. <laughs> That's it's, it's basically the iPhone. It it's a touchscreen iPod. <laughs> it's an internet communicator. And it's a telephone, <laughs> and it has a keyboard. It's just glass. Yeah. And it's not just that like he predicted and eventually made the thing he wanted, but we get back again to like, don't discount the smartphone. This is, this is the device that the world wanted. And he was talking about it in 1997. And with this, with this acquisition and, and, and with the forum that he had from, from this WWDC onward from 97 onward until his death, he had, he had the position to make it happen and the position to present it to the world. So yeah, WWDC is uh, quite an event. Yeah. <laughs> Hope everyone enjoys WWDC over the next week, whether you are in attendance in San Francisco or elsewhere in the world, sitting on your couch, uh, watching that nerd keynote on, <laughs> on your Apple TV. Yeah. Uh, we hope you have safe travels. If you do go to San Francisco um, and make sure to take advantage of like all the parts of the community. Like we always like to say, this is a podcast about the Mac community. Um, we've, we've already talked about in this episode, some other facets of how you can come together in San Francisco or around these events to support the community. So even if you didn't get your, uh, your lot, lucky lottery ticket and, uh, you make your way to San Francisco or just, uh, meet up with people virtually, we hope that this next week, uh, as a as a singular event for people in the Apple community that we can all get together and uh, talk about what's what's happening now and in the future. And uh, if you have time to reminisce like we've done here today. And we won't be at WWDC, unfortunately. Other things to do <laughs> in our lives. Um, but if you want to get in touch with us, just uh, pull out the little thing that's connected to the net that's in your pocket. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. And of course, you can find each of us individually on Twitter. I am at Ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And just like any great Apple event, uh, as it wraps up, you got to play out with some, some great outro music. Enjoy WWDC. <laughs>